0: Paid at large, I'm Linda Lopate. Wildlife conservationist, environmental historian, and attorney E. Bear has written a book about the history of the American conservation movement, the growth of the country, and how demand for government services and programs is working against efforts to protect wildlife. The book, Federalism, Preemption, and the Nationalization of American Wildlife Management, the dynamic balance between state and federal authority. It's published by Roman and Littlefield and brings Lowell Bear to our show now. Welcome.
1: Oh, I did. I do very vividly. Um, b- both areas, the ranch and the farm, were very rural, very isolated. And I was involved with the Boy Scouts and I worked on a merit badge for, uh, of entomology. And that got me into collecting butterflies and bugs of all sorts and identifying them and then mounting them for, um, for, for display. And um, uh, so I, I was fascinated as I did that in rural Indiana and rural Montana to compare the different types of bugs and butterflies and all sorts of insects. And that curiosity has stayed with me throughout my life.
0: And you've traveled extensively throughout North America, the Pamirs, uh, the Caucasus of Russia, Mongolia's Gobi Desert, the Altai Mountains. What role have those travels played in your commitment to conservation and wildlife preservation?
1: On all of those treks, I I was able to be in very, very uh, rural areas. They They were wildlife treks. And I could see how... The expanding population of the globe was utilizing, formerly, under, unutilized, ungrazed, unranged, uh, uncultivated lands over the years. And, uh, and I, I began to realize how, as population expanded and the population moved into undeveloped areas, how the habitat was being totally uh, destroyed. Uh, through, um, frankly, their ignorance of what uh, depredation of the landscape would uh, ultimately cause uh, to wildlife and other natural resources. And so I've got a firsthand, up-close view of how man was using hmm. his, you know, the, the, the earth around him. And um, uh, uh, I really could see up close and personal the destruction that was being done, and how overgrazing, etc., was just destroying parts of the planet
0: throughout the world. Weren't you asked to draft President George H. W. Bush's wildlife conservation agenda in 1989? What led yes, to your was. What led to your choice
1: f- to do that? What, you mean, why did he ask you yeah, to why, do that? Yeah,
0: why did they ask you? It, I mean. It, uh, <laughs> You obviously know an awful lot, but were you already well known enough in 1989 for that to have happened?
1: Yes, I was. Um, I'll, let me let me t- give you the the, the exact uh, contact point. Um, I have been a member of the, of, a, of America's oldest wildlife conservation organization uh, for well since 1975, founded by Theodore Roosevelt back in 1887, and we had a Um, uh, And many of us knew the various uh, candidates for presidency before uh, Bush was elected. And uh, very shortly, I mean, within the first week or so uh, of his inauguration, we were in the Oval Office with him uh, for a meeting uh, to discuss his wildlife agenda. And it became very clear that he didn't have one. And we knew throughout his campaign that he was very, uh, very light on, on his conservation agenda. So we, 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 we discussed that with him and he very kindly, uh, said, well, you know, you're right. Uh, and I need help. Uh, and, uh, everyone turned to me because a, I'm an attorney, B, I have the background in it. C, I was right here and live in Washington. And, uh, and the president looked at me and he said, would you undertake that, that task? And it's not, it's not a light task. So know what you're, you're getting into. And I, and I said, yes, Mr. President, I know, and i will be delighted to do it. And what so did you learn from that happening. experience? Sir?
0: What did you learn from that experience?
1: Crafting a, a wildlife agenda for a president is extremely involved um, and time-consuming to get it right and to get, get, get deliverables um, on his agenda, that he could manage and get done within four years, there was there were a lot of many many things back then, uh, just like there are today, that had to be um, uh, remedies uh, from past mistakes, etc. And um, uh, not 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 by fault of past presidents, but just purely by by circumstance in the expanding population, and so one had to be very judicious in selecting. The, the 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 items that he should, as president, focus on uh, and get done within a four-year period.
0: And you served as an advisor on wildlife conservation to all of the succeeding presidents. How much yes. has wildlife conservation policy evolved over both Republican and Democratic administrations? And were there major differences in their agendas?
1: Yes, there was. Um the Republican presidents were, were more focused on the regulatory aspects of wildlife management. And the Democratic presidents were more focused, uh, were, were equally focused, but in, in a different way. They wanted to, to increase regulations and management of, of wildlife conservation issues, um, whereas the Republicans wanted to thwart or eliminate many of the steps required by legislation in order to give um, commerce and industry a freer hand in land use management.
0: Let's look at this uh, historically. In 1891, President Benjamin Harris signed into law the Forest Reserve Act to protect forest reserves to be managed by the Department of Interior. First of all, what were forest reserves, and what was the passage of that legislation all about?
1: Uh, What date did you use?
0: Was I wrong? 1891?
1: Uh, No, that's correct. I thought you said an earlier date. No, that is correct. Um, uh, The the timber barons of America were destroying many of the virgin forests. Mm in order to provide a uh, number for railroad ties and for building towns and cities. And, and they left a terrible, um, uh, area of clear cut in their, in their, in their past as they moved through various forests without replanting, without concern about later runoff from, uh, 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 bad weather and uh, precipitation, et cetera. Um, so he um, undertook to try to preserve what he could of, of the forest reserves that, that, that were controlled on public lands. This was a public lands mm-hmm. initiative um, driven in, in large part by, by Yellowstone because the timber barons were just, just all over uh, Yellowstone National Park as we know it today. Uh, So that's really the the thrust, but it didn't stop at Yellowstone. It went throughout the West and throughout the East.
0: And he wasn't, then the presidents, uh, some other presidents also were concerned, Uh, not just Harrison, but also Cleveland McKinley designated approximately 50 million acres into the forest reserve system. Was that the start of the American conservation movement?
1: It was during that period. And he contributed to it in that in that minor way because saving forests preserving woodlands was a major part of of the beginning of the conservation movement but really what uh, we look upon from a historical standpoint is the loss of animals Hmm. which um folks like um, uh, theodore roosevelt george bird gunnell um um, and and others um, focused on, and that their focus and their actions to stem the destruction of wildlife across America and the near extinction of the buffalo is what really, really sparked in in uh, the conservation movement as we know it today. But forests um, and other natural resource areas were equally as involved but what what most people think of is the conservation movement uh, today really was based on wildlife preservation
0: and uh, as you point out Roosevelt was is considered to be the leading champion of the American wildlife conservation movement and was friends with George Rennell, who started the Audubon Society and and worked to preserve the American bison Also, Frank Chapman, who was a curator and ornithologist at the American Museum of Natural History. So, um, obviously, there were a number of people getting involved. Um, Roosevelt's first formal conservation act in 1903 declared Pelican Island, Florida, the first refuge in what's now the National Wildlife Refuge System.
1: Why Pelican Island? His colleagues brought it to his attention because this was— this was really, at that point in time, the peak of, the, of what we call the plume trade. Women's would ad, women would adore their hats and their their clothing with the skins of dead birds. So and, we
0: went from deforesting to building railroad ties to then killing off birds for, for women's hats.
1: Well, yes, that's correct and and pelican island was a great uh, rookery for uh the hides for the for, for for colorful birds and so that's why it was preserved as it was
0: well how was the creation of the national wildlife refuge system received because he established 54 more wildlife refuges during his presidency and today, the National Wildlife Refuge System reaches 95 million acres, including 567 national wildlife refuges and 38 wetlands management districts.
1: Those I don't have those numbers in front of me. Well, but they come from right. you.
0: They do come from you. Anyway, but the point is that he really did get a lot of stuff going and started wildlife refuges.
1: Well, he, he, he had a lot of help. Uh, George Bergernell was at his side constantly, uh, starting about uh, well, it was in the late 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, after he came back from his 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 ranch that he had developed out in just just uh, north of Medora, uh, North Dakota, it was the Elkhorn Ranch, and um, uh, but but it was Grinnell. Um, and, and, and uh, uh, a host of people, all of whom were the nucleus of what became known as the Boone and Quacker Club. It was formed in 1887, and they were dedicated wildlife conservationists and natural resource um, folks that had specialties uh, both in wildlife and fish, uh, forestry, uh, grasslands, et cetera.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Lowell E. Bear. Uh, His book, Federalism, Preemption, and the Nationalization of American Wildlife Management, The Dynamic Balance Between State and Federal Authorities, published by Roman and Littlefield. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, Roosevelt did a lot. He established the U.S. Forest Service, protected 150 national forests, signed the Antiquities Act in 1906, which led to the creation of 18 new national monuments, including what became Grand Canyon National Park, established five national parks, and in total, didn't Roosevelt protect over 230 million acres? That's correct. Wow. That's correct. Are they still protected?
1: They are indeed, and uh, many of them were dedicated initially uh, or identified as monuments and later became parks. Mm-hmm. Like Grand Canyon was first a monument and it later became a park. But, um, yes, they they still exist today. Many of them have been expanded, and other presidents, of course, have added many, many more to it. Uh, Obama, President Obama's record actually was beyond 230 million huh. in uh, parks and refuges.
0: You led a national campaign from 2004 to 2007 to raise six and a half million dollars to purchase the largest remaining piece of privately held land. Oh, that was that was the Elkhorn Ranch.
1: Yes, that was Theodore Roosevelt's Elkhorn Ranch in North Dakota.
0: So that ha- was not federal property at the time.
1: No, it wasn't. It was adjacent to the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Um, and it was the largest uh, and last remaining piece. And the Interior Department came to me and said, um, it's going to get gobbled up. Uh, the, the owners want to sell it, but they have told us that they would hold it until somebody would step in and raise the money to, to um, buy that and add it to the national park. And so we're turning to you because you have expertise um, in real estate uh, uh, issues Uh, in addition to your heart, um, Mm -hmm. uh, really supporting Roosevelt's legacy. And uh, so I jumped in and said, yes, I would do it. And it took me about three years to raise that money around America. We've got some from the federal government through the land and water conservation fund, but much of it came from um, various uh, people and companies throughout America. And uh, we did buy it. Uh, it was put in the name of the Forest Service. And there, there was going to be an MOU has, that has yet to be realized, adding it directly to the management of the National Park. And by doing so, it would increase the Theodore Roosevelt National Park by one-third of its existing size. Wow! Notwithstanding the, the absence of that, however, people treat it as though it is part of the national park and regularly tour it and um, uh, go on to that property and enjoy its its beautiful perspectives and uh, its seasons.
0: You say that you have three goals for this book, to educate, to ease tensions in wildlife management in the country, uh, to, to foster cooperation, and to increase congressional funding for endangered species. What are the key issues blocking wildlife conservation agendas?
1: Well, that's a Leonard, that's a great question. And really that those three points relate not only to that book, but the book that the, the next book that's coming out on August fifteenth of this year, which is the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. It's a, a complete analysis of the fifty year history of the Endangered Species Act. Hmm. Now
0: And you, you uh, wrote that one too?
1: Yes, that'll be my fifth book, huh. um, and I wrote wrote that. It's that was a seven year project to get that thing written. It was mm. a monster of a project to, to research fifty in in detail, minute detail, the fifty year history of the Endangered Species Act. But to specifically answer your question, um, when the federal government created the Endangered Species Act in nineteen seventy three, they preempted state control state management of listed endangered or threatened species. And um, the states um, except for the 1900 Lacey Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 except for those two laws the states controlled wildlife period um until the endangered species act was 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 enacted in 73. now it that has created a conflict between state and federal governments over who is going to manage threatened and endangered species every state has 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 them
0: well who fought but, for it and who fought against it
1: well uh, the 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 Back when it was passed, during when you read the hearings of seventy-one, two, and three, leading up to its enactment, no one really took it seriously as a major um, piece of legislation that would realize the control that the government, federal government, has since um, has since adopted. With that act, uh, they saw it as an extension of the 19 um, let's see 1965 and the 1969 endangered species act Mm -hmm. which were small uh uh, small bills small laws Uh, this really put to the teeth into it however and the states were concerned about preemption and the loss of control of species but they went along with it because there was a section section six in that in the bill that said that they those species would be cooperatively managed with the states. Well, unfortunately, the heavy hand of the federal government started out by ignoring state management of those species, and that, and and, and a lot has been has changed since seventy three. But initially, there was a very heavy hand in the management that ignored state involvement, and that created a uh, what shall I call it a dark mythology that continues. To, to to haunt the history and the the reflection that people have of that particular act that's that's where the the tension and the problem comes from and isn't um,
0: it in the that act the endangered species act currently in danger what are the key issues being considered
1: well there have been Six hundred since 1973, there have been 600 attacks on the Endangered Species Act in Congress to either repeal it totally or dumb it down and and really make it quite um, innocuous.
0: Is this a bipartisan and, thing, or is it? A- no,
1: no, no. They have been they've been they've been very bitter attacks, primarily driven by commerce and industry, mm-hmm. who. Take offense at the act because it controls their land use for loggers, miners, uh, cattlemen, it, it, cattlemen, um, uh, wheat and and corn and soybean growers, etc. Because if there's an endangered species on that property, they have to be conscious of how they 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 maintain that property and how they use that property. And um, depending on whether they're threatened or endangered, depending on what the level of of, um, risk there is to those animals and the size of the population, all factor into how heavy uh, management becomes. So it's been driven by uh, heavy by commerce and industry who fought bitterly against um, uh, the Endangered Species Act. Oil and gas being the leaders of the group. How and they would, are, they still they remain that way today. Well, but the would, second issue is funding, which uh, I will address whenever you want me to, but funding is the other problem. Well, th- th-
0: maybe that's part of the answer to my next question. How would things change without the Endangered Species Act?
1: How would things change? Yeah. Oh, my. Well, first off, um, what? Well, um the various sectors of industry led by by oil and gas developers uh, would degradate the habitat that endangers endangered species live on and use for uh, migration uh, for breeding and uh, uh, repopulation uh, etc. and they would they would destroy. Um, many of the endangered species that are now now protected under the Act, there are sixteen hundred and seventy-eight um, species that are listed under that Act, and they're not all wildlife. Some of them are plants as well, but w- they be, that would begin to further increase the issue of biodiversity that is so important to the future of our globe, uh, which is what the Endangered Species Act is. It is a piece of the protection bulwark around trying to, to to protect our biodiversity.
0: Now, was it in response to something that happened earlier in 1876? The Supreme Court determined that each state owned its own wildlife. Why was that decision made at the time?
1: And That's ha- correct. But that was then overruled and it was considered um, it was considered it was reversed and it was considered an anachronism uh, in a later court case um, in the 18, in 19 I have to remember in the 1980s, hmm. that was reversed and declared a, a legal fiction.
0: What about the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887, the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906? What roles did they play in what we are discussing?
1: Sure, uh, 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 there there was a tangential role. The reason that those laws were enacted back then was to harness the evils of of uh, of our expanding business sector, uh, railroads, uh, steel mills, uh, and 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 other groups that monopolized a particular. A commodity like like sugar, for example, um, but they their use of the landscape was was very um, irresponsible, and even though those acts were in- enacted to control, not necessarily the habitat that, that they, those industries were destroying, they, those those were were enacted to control the business ethic that was taken uh, uh, during that period of no restraint at all, which, which caused monopolies, which caused terrible, severe labor problems. Uh, the, 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 city, the slums in the cities were all created as, as a result of workers, uh, low paid workers coming in, many of them migrants, to work in factories and so forth. And all sorts of social ills uh, were, were generated uh, in tenement housing, and sewage and, and clean water, and so forth. However, did, that this was is what the, led the to the
0: progressive movement, uh, did, didn't it? it, sir? As a result, we got the progressive movement.
1: Yes, that was yes. Harnessing those industries was the was the underlying uh, uh, pro, what we call the progressive movement today. A byproduct of that, however, was. Uh, although it wasn 't intended, was never thought about, but a byproduct of that of that was um, the protection of our of our of habitats and natural resources because a focus on that was going on uh, during the progressive movement and was driven by the progressive movement in tandem with the, the control of the monopolies uh, and the ills that they were creating
0: so in one thousand nine hundred the Lacey Act prohibited the sale of wild animals or their parts across state lines. How did that change things?
1: Well, uh, that's a great question because we had uh, a, 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 a phenomenon called market hunting back then. Hmm. Uh, this, the, as people moved into the cities, uh, they lost their connection with the rural areas where they, where they harvested uh, deer, uh, turkey, and other uh, game uh, to feed themselves in addition to their own livestock that they would raise and the crops that they would grow however the cities when they were were, were when the people were were um, separated from that uh, a basis of food product uh, by working in in a you know in a mill in 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 a city um there was a cadre of people that ignored the laws and would slaughter game irrespective of a season. The seasons, even though seasons were established for hunting, uh, they were ignored by these people, who, in, in whether it was uh, uh, ducks or geese, uh, or or um, um, uh, squirrels or birds of any type, of um, and and uh, animals, deer and 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 buffalo and elk. Uh, because the refrigerated car was created about that time in order to ship wild meat to, from the west to the east, and they were they were called market hunters. And so the Lacey Act of 1900 uh, said that if it was killed illegally in another state, you could not bring it in uh, and sell it in 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 a you know in, in a, in a in, across state lines.
0: And the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 removed migratory birds from the control of of state governments. That's correct. So this is um, a, a federal state thing uh, playing out throughout our history.
1: Yes, indeed, it has. But the American, um, how shall I say it, hunter and other people, very quickly in the twenties and thirties, acclimated uh, to the Lacey Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and it really wasn't the sledgehammer of the Endangered Species Act until the 70s, when the federal c- control really, really became apparent. Um, and, th- and there's a lot of history between the, the, the early 1900s and 1973. There's a tremendous amount of history in there mm-hmm. of slow creep, of slow preemption of the federal government moving in. And it wasn't just on, on wildlife management. It was on all sectors of our, of, of, of our politics it was child care it was um, clean air clean water um, a, a, um, health care and other uh, major social issues that the federal government moved in on that were primarily and originally state uh, state control and we're but still the seeing that, slowly that... Slowly moved in and uh, wildlife management was just a part of, of the phenomenon of the, federal, of the federal government being enlarged and taking more and more control.
0: We'll come back to that after we take a little break. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Lowell E. Bayer. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Federalism, Preemption, and the Nationalization of American Wildlife Management. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 209-2950 209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's GIVE and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Lowell E. Bayer, the book, uh, the complete title, Federalism, very long federalism, preemption, and the nationalization of American wildlife management: the dynamic balance between state and federal authority, published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, the uh, Mr. Bear is an attorney, a legal and environmental historian. Uh, he's been an advocate for natural resources and wildlife con- conservation for over five decades and he was recognized as the conservationist of the year in 2008 in 2010 and 2013 and maybe most important in 2015 he received the honor of distinguished eagle scout <laughs> congratulations oh
1: sorry yeah. are you there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm here okay <laughs> i and 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 scouting is really what started this as as you you uh, um uh heard at the beginning of this program uh when I worked on my entomology merit badge. <laughs> and and that and that interest has followed me ever since and brings me to your show today.
0: The big concepts you discuss in this book are federalism, preemption, and nationalization. Let's begin with federalism. Uh, the the legal definition of federalism is um the relationship and distribution of power between the national and regional governments within a federal system of government and in the United States, particularly between the federal government and the state governments. How is that balance of power determined, especially in regard to what we're discussing here?
1: Well, it's, it's established by the Constitution. Um, there is provision in the Constitution um, and in subsequent legal cases uh, that uh, really keep a clear separation between the states that have have powers other than those few that were given to the federal government. Uh, back in uh, when the Constitution was finally adopted, back in the eight, uh, 1780s, late 80s, um, the, um, the uh, states had been around for like 150 years. They were colonies. They'd been around a long time and they were used to self-government. Um, and so they were very, very leery of giving federal government any control. Um, because they had managed their own affairs for 150 years and 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 were you know we're were pleased with it. They were forced somewhat into this for a variety of economic and political reasons. However and this, when, the, when the Constitution was written, there were clearly defined specifics of powers that the federal government was given, and only those powers. Well, the, they, they had
0: created a centralized government, but wasn't management of wildlife left to the states?
1: It was It was not even mentioned in the Constitution because cause it was like free air and free water. Hmm. You didn't even think about it. It was a given that people— uh, could could uh, hunt and fish uh, whenever they wanted to uh, to sustain themselves because when they they came here as as pilgrims they had to live off the land mm-hmm. and they had to had to learn how to, how to harvest game in order to survive and that 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 uh, uh, ethic of, of of sustaining themselves through the natural uh, system survived as a given. Um, uh, so it was part of the the, the rights uh, of of uh, of free men when they came to this country, established this country based upon um, their own, you know, their 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 own freedoms, uh, which included uh, wildlife. But but it was so basic it was not even mentioned in uh, in in the Constitution because it was the right to feed themselves. And sustain their families.
0: People went and hunted for their food. Don't questions of preemption arise when dealing with issues of concurrent federal and state power? Uh, Yes. The the legal definition of preemption is the principle derived from the supremacy clause that a federal law can supersede or supplant any inconsistent state law or regulation. Why is that so important right now?
1: Um, uh, the it's been important all along not just right now but to specifically address your question of now um, our our controls our, our social controls are very confused between the federal and the state governments and they overlap in so many different areas and because, as we become more and more um, involved technologically in the de- de- development of commerce um, and in our own ability to communicate with each other and live our lives in in freedom, um, it 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 becomes contested over who has the rights to govern some of those apparent freedoms. Abortion is a perfect example. Um, uh, it was a bitter, bitter uh, 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 um, uh, issue for the Supreme Court have, have to have to, to revisit on, on Roe v. Wade, but in the end, it was it was you know the the right of a woman to to maintain herself and her own pregnancy was really a matter of state control, not federal control. The federal government had nothing to do with 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 um, uh you know with the issue of, of of pregnancy and abortion it was a women's right and that's that I mean that's just you picked the example I picked that example uh, to answer your, your question because there are so many issues where state state control and federal control and the human dignity sandwich in between those two uh, gets, uh litigated gets gets becomes public uh, uh political issues when it shouldn't but it, but it does because of uh, of the, of the question of well who has who has the right hmm. who has the right over that liberty to control it if anybody
0: well hasn't being pro preemption meant different things over time uh wasn't being preemption of state law considered a liberal position during the Warren Court era, how did it become a more conservative stance in favor of deregulation? <clears throat> well,
1: uh, the Warren Court certainly did, uh, did, did as you indi- just indicated. Yes. I- the, the issue of The conservative movement, however, reversing much of what the Warren court did, or at least challenging it and investigating it, um, that's a whole separate subject, far beyond what we've been talking about here. Okay.
0: But we are – I am talking with Lowell E. Bayer. His most recent book – this is your sixth?
1: My most recent book is the fifth. There is a sixth one that we've been working on for two and a half years. Okay, the fifth one. I'm George Bird Grinnell, as a matter of fact, as you mentioned his name earlier. Uh, But the fifth book is called The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, volume one, the first 50 years. And then there's a volume two right behind it, which is the next 50 years. Hmm. And it focuses on, obviously, the Endangered Species Act. Well,
0: we've been talking about federalism, preemption, and the nationalization of American wildlife movement, the dynamic balance between state and federal authority, published by Roman and Littlefield. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You ultimately argue that state and federal wildlife authorities need to cooperate to best protect American wildlife with the Endangered Species Act. What has to change for that to happen?
1: Well, for starters, the federal government wrote the law in 1979, enacted the law. And they made a moral commitment to do so. When you read through the extensive, extensive hearings in 1971, 72, and 73, that led up to the enactment of the Endangered Species Act, House, the House and the Senate Members both used the word a moral of th- um, the moral commitment that they had to this country to protect its future um, and the future of biodiversity through the creation of the Endangered Species Act. Um, that was a moral commitment, and they wrestled back then with how much money should they they give this initiative and. Um, There was originally a $15 million cap on it. They took that off fairly quickly. But there is the need for far more funding to facilitate, both at the federal and the state level, wildlife management over threatened and endangered species.
0: Beyond funding, what policy changes would you like to
1: see? The funding is is, is not uh, consistent with the moral commitment. Mm -hmm. They made a moral commitment, and now they don't want to fund it.
0: Well, as I said, what policy changes do you want to see for wildlife conservation?
1: Well, the most important right now, this day, is funding. Mm-hmm. And for three Congresses in a row, six years, there has been an act pending called Rawa, R-A-W-A, which, which is, uh, stands for Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And that provides, through a a variety of sources, $1.3 billion per year that would go to the states and some to the federal government in order to help manage threatened and endangered species, and species that are not even on the list yet. Uh, We call them the candid, candid species. But we need that funding. And that's the moral commitment that the that the Congress made to the country back in nineteen seventy three and they've yet to follow through on it. Every year it has been a fight to get more money. And that act would put the Endangered Species Act on a solid footing to erase much of the of, of the heartache and the trouble that you have you have referred to throughout this this dialogue. Because the because the seriousness of uh, of the issue between the federal and state government is very, very real.
0: Are there some species that are still very endangered at this moment?
1: I don't understand your question. Uh, Are
0: there some species that are endangered at this moment that we should be concerned about?
1: Oh, my, my, yes. Um, The black-footed ferret, the monarch butterfly, uh, the piping plover, the red-knot shorebird here on the east. uh, I said the black-footed ferret. Uh, the Mexican and, and the red wolves, two different species, mm-hmm. just just to throw a few of the examples out there. The monarch is the one that, that, that really f- captures my attention because we all are familiar with what a monarch butterfly is.
0: I noticed I had—I uh, was living upstate uh, some years ago, and one year I had a lot of monarch butterflies, and uh, they were— um, making babies and all, and then the next year, hardly any.
1: Yes. Well, we here in the East have lost, there's there's two different populations, Eastern and the Western population separated by the mountains. And the Eastern population has declined by 90% over the last 10 years. Wow. The Western population has declined by 98% over the last several years. And it's just one, one indication of what's happening to the environment around us. Um, this, this past summer, the grandkids wanted to go out. And they, they said, Grandpa, what did you do when you were a little kid? We were at the lake, and there there's no TV up there. And, and they said, what, what, do you, what did you do when you were a little kid? You didn't have TV. Um, and we don't today. And so what do we do? <laughs> and it was an evening, and I said, well, you go out and catch fireflies. And they sort of looked at me, and, and they said, well, what do you mean? Mm. And, and I said, well, those little bugs that, that light up at night. Oh, yeah, we've seen a few of those. Well, when I was a kid growing up in the Midwest, we'd go out, and within a half an hour, you could have a, a, a mason jar filled with with fireflies and bring them in, and you could light a room almost with those those few little fireflies. They'd fill up a, a you know small masonry jar. Well, the kids, we took some jars out and i think we got maybe five or six but um uh fireflies in in an hour's time they couldn't find them and they're 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 just one example those the monarch and 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 the and the and the firefly are just two examples of the the, the kinds of species that, that we are we are losing that are are essential to um, mankind because uh food and medicine are the two biggest things that mankind derives from the natural environment around us and when i when i say biodiversity i'm talking about the natural world around us the world around us of all living organisms plants animals insects and micro microorganisms that live on the planet it's like a a big red balloon or a, a yellow a green balloon we use a green balloon as an example big round green balloon and it's filled with all the life of the planet, all the living organisms of the planet, like the monarch butterfly and the, and the, and the firefly, night fireflies. And as they diminish, and that that balloon gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and all of a sudden, it just it just collapses, and it's just it's just gone.
0: We uh, only have a couple of minutes left, and uh, I wanted. Uh, very quickly to address the three biggest threats you write about that undermine federalism and state wildlife management authority. Uh, the exponential growth and pervasiveness of federal agency actions that can occasionally result in what's called overreach. Uh, the grants in aid to states with unreasonable conditions attached. And Um, insufficient federal funding to support the administration regulatory enforcement of the Endangered Species Act. And you have two minutes or three minutes (laughs) to to answer those very complex issues.
1: Well, funding is the biggest issue, the biggest problem, as I said before. And that's why Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which is again now in its third Congress, uh, needs to be enacted to, to 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 give the wildlife managers at the federal and state level the money to manage the wildlife. And that would reduce a lot of the tension that we suffer with today. Um, Does the partisanship
0: of today uh, lead to difficulties along these lines?
1: I'm sorry, I I didn't understand Uh, you. We
0: have a very divided Congress, partisan wise. Yes. Yes. So that's well, adding to the problem.
1: Oh, and, and, oh by, uh, yeah, uh, partisanship is, hmm. has been a major part of the problem. And it's worked both ways. But, but partisanship has been really a major problem for this country as it related to wildlife management. Yes. Um,
0: and Those, how, how does it break down these days? Is it just simply a matter of saying, well, let the states decide, and if, if we lose a little bit of wildlife, that's the way it is?
1: Well, it's it's managed by the, the moment, unfortunately, and, and, and it's managed by the issues that are current in front of Amer- of, of, of the politics uh, today and what they're focused on today. And wildlife seems to to always get shuttle way to the end. But what are the major things that we look at today? You know, do we do we continue to fund the war in the Ukraine or not? That's a major issue for this country. Um, and, you know, who gets the do do we spend money on guns and bullets for the Ukrainian military, you know, or do we we try to save our species? Well, which gets the most attention on the, you know, at, at the federal level? It's on the TV every night. Take your pick.
0: No, whenever we talk about wildlife on the news, it's always a bear has threatened a little kid or something like that. Anyway, we have it's been a fascinating conversation. I thank you so much for being on our show to talk about your book, Federalism Preemption and the Nationalization of American Wildlife Management, the dynamic balance between state and federal authority. Lowly bear, I hope to speak to you again soon.
1: Thank you, Leonard. Have a good afternoon. And
0: that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Kwan Allison for all of her help in preparing this segment. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is Leonard at wbai.org. I suspect that if you're a regular listener to the station, you know that we are going through a really rough time economically right now. So before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support VAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you weekdays. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling... 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number two WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing Federalism, Preemption and the Nationalization of American Wildlife Management by Lowell E. Bear why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online to give to wbaiorg You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of a station, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $25, $30, whatever. Um, we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. I don't see too many of those tote bags out there. I wish I could see a lot more, but either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We are the only station in the New York dial that relies 100% on the support of our audience. Um, It's tax deductible, so please make that call. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Thursday when our guests will be our favorite language experts, Catherine and Ross Petras. We'll see you then.